Welcome everyone to this very special event at the LSE. My name is Minou Shafiq and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. This year for Black History Month, LSE's decided to celebrate black figures in history that helped shape not only the black community, but helped shape the world. And with the passing of Chadwick Boseman earlier this year, we chose the theme Young, Gifted and Black in memoriam and inspired by Bozeman's acceptance speech at the Screen Actors Guild Awards in 2019. The theme was chosen to initiate a conversation around representation that the film presented and to celebrate those who've created change for black people and across the world. And while looking deeply at our own history, we wanted to celebrate those who use their gifts to build a better future for all of us. And in that spirit, I'm delighted to welcome today Dr. Shola Moss Shogbanimu to the LSE today. Welcome, Dr. Shola, at what is our flagship event for Black History Month in celebration with the LSE Students' Union. Now, the LSE has exhibited a wonderful showcase of events this month, and this In Conversation session with Shola is the closing public lecture of this month of celebration. Shola is a prominent lawyer, and political and women's rights activist. She's also an LSE alumna, and so we are especially delighted to welcome her back to the school. Her new book, This Is Why I Resist, in which she explores the roots of racism in the UK and the US, can be pre-ordered and is a, a link is available on the chat for you to do that. She, uh, she will also, she's also, I should say, did a master's in comparative and corporate and, com uh, sorry, excuse me, commercial and corporate law at the LSE, but has also many, many other degrees, which I think she will tell us about during this conversation. <laughs> now, for those of you who use Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Black History Month, and the event will be recorded and hopefully uh, available as a podcast afterwards. We're going to begin with a conversation between myself and Shola, and uh, as usual, there'll be a chance for the audience to ask questions. So please be thinking of those questions and type them into the Q&A function uh, in, in, uh, in Zoom. Those questions will be submitted to Embrace, which is our LSE Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic Staff Network, and we'll try and get to as many of them as possible, because I think Shola is very keen to have a very interactive session. Do add your name and affiliation uh, to the question if you would like to. We're very keen to hear particularly from students, alumna, and incoming students, uh, and so let us know if that applies to you. So let me turn to Shola. Uh, and, and start off really with the forces that shaped you and influenced you. You are a fantastic example of what we're trying to celebrate this month at LSE, Young, Gifted and Black. And uh, I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about the influences and inspirations that, that, that shaped you over the course of your life. Oh my God, thank you so much. And I, I'm so honored to be here. Um, can I just first of all start with, I'm really, I'm really chuffed to be called young because according to my children, I'm ancient and I'm always having ancient moments <laughs> in which I can't remember Jack all. But um, <laughs> um, for me, there's, there's so much about who we are today that is shaped by different circumstances. I draw inspiration from my parents. I draw inspiration from my father, who as far as I'm concerned is the first 
male feminist that I know. My father used to say to me to spread my wings and fly. He never understood the concept of maybe staying at home and doing nothing else. I was like, no, 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 that's so much for you to, you know, go there, spread your wings, do what you, you can do it. That's the way I was brought up. And he was the one that made me fall in love with, you know, with books as well. I draw inspiration. I think, you know, just looking back, I draw inspiration from those who have paved the way for someone like me. Even when I didn't realize that there was a way that has been paved for me. You know, a lot of us in, um, in our generation walk into circumstances not realizing how much blood, how much sweat has paved that way. And it is only through my journey that I've gone, whoa, if, if I had known. I mean, you know, you, you make some mistakes along the way. Come on, that is all part of life. Um, my, my mom used to, I, I thought she was just teasing me, but now I see she totally makes sense about it. She's like, shall I, in the name of God, right? You don't have to learn from your experience. You can learn from other people's experiences. <laughs> so you don't make the same mistake. And then she would say blue and I would say black. She would say red. I would say purple. And now that I'm a mother myself, I'm like, whoa, she was so right. <laughs> so especially in black history month. Um, and for me over the years of my life, I've become so much more, um, I suppose the best way to describe it, I've become so much attuned to those who have, over the centuries, made it possible for me to be me. Because, you see, that's what I'm about. I just want to be me. I want to be the best that I can be. I can admire other people, but I don't want to be them. So I look at leaders from Africa, from Nelson Mandela to, um, you know, Fela and Nicola Kokuti. I mean, people in different industries who have used their voice, their skills as a form of protest against the status quo to create a better world, to, to speak truth to power. And you look at leaders from here in Britain, from the United States, whether it's the Rosa Parks, the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm X's, who fought the good fight for equality, for justice. And what does that look like? And it's also understanding as you draw inspiration from different people, I, I don't believe that I have one person. Maybe some people have one person because when I've been asked this question, like, can I just say I don't have one person that I've drawn inspiration from because I've drawn inspiration from people I know and people I don't know and people that you have no idea about from young people and from older people. So I find that by the grace of God, my life is shaped as I make certain decisions, as I make certain choices, it's because I have seen it is possible. It is because sometimes you, the you of yesterday needs to also draw inspiration for, from you. This is something I say to my kids sometimes. I listen, please, in, in the name of all that is good. The 30-year-old you is waiting for the 14-year-old you to make a decision to make something easier for the 30-year-old you to do so that the 45-year-old you gets to celebrate about it. And my kids are a young age, but I understand it better than I would have at that age. So inspiration for me is really from all those who have made a difference and those who are doing it right now through their own choices, from different backgrounds and um, different industries to me. It just makes it clearer and that each one of us is able to make a difference. Mm. And tell us a little bit about your time at the LSC. Were there any particular inspirational moments or people uh, or memories that you hold from that time? 
Okay, can I, I shared this the other day, but, um, okay, so I remember walking outside the LSE. This was, ooh, well over a decade ago. And I was walking outside the school, um, and I looked at it and I went, one day I'm going to go to this university. That was it for me. I just went, one day I'm going to go to this university. I just done my, I finished my first degree at the University of Buckingham. And I thought, I want to come and do my master's in law at, at the LSE. I love the sound of it. I mean, I, there was just a connection. I can't explain it to you. I, honest to God, cannot explain it to you. I can't say it because I did some research and compared to this school. It wasn't that. There was just a connection. But before I could co come to LSE, even getting into LSE wasn't so easy, right? And uh, because I had a 2-2, and I think at that time you need to have like a minimum of 2-1 for them to even consider. So this is me like, oh, I really want to get into LSE. But I did what I needed to do because I wanted to do another master's degree. I went to University of Westminster, and I did a master's degree in diplomatic studies in which I got a distinction. Mm -hmm. So by the grace of God, that bridged the gap with the 2-2, and then I got into LSE to do my master's in commercial and corporate law. And I loved it. Oh my God, I loved it, I loved it, I loved it, I loved it. Um, now, I wasn't one of those students that hung out in the, I can't even remember now if we had a pub or the student area. But I got involved. I was the theater editor of the student newspaper, The Beaver. Um, boy, did I enjoy going to all those plays and musicals, free tickets, yeah, 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 and writing <laughs> about them. Um, I also joined the, um, I believe I was the diplomatic secretary for the, God, I'm getting old now, but I joined another society. It is like an international society, and my job was to engage with different embassies, and in that particular society, there, there were students from other other parts of the university, other departments. And so I would arrange for events at the Chinese embassy, at different embassies, and we go there, listen to a talk where we had free food. Yes! And, um, and that was really, really good. That, that, that really broadened my thinking. I was, I am still very proud to have gone to the LSE. Um, and we, it, it was an exciting, exciting time for me. I, I think I did it, yeah, I did the one year master's degree. I loved it and still love it. And I'm so proud that I'm an alumni. Well, that's, that's good because the pride is mutual. So, <laughs> so let me turn, you've, you've talked a lot and written about education and issues around equality in both schools and universities. And we all know we have a long way to go. COVID has made everything worse in terms of equity of opportunity in education. Tell us a little bit about what you'd like to see happen in education. I would love to see more, um, more of the teaching be diversified so that we have diverse thought leadership in terms of the materials students read whether it's in primary, secondary, school or university, there is no one school of thought. I mean, I mean, you don't even need to do a PhD like I did for you to know that doing your master's and doing your first degree, that when you're doing your research, you are trained to dig out different schools of thought so that you can present a balanced, um, you know, hypothesis of this or that, right? And that means that we are missing out. We are missing out on contributions from different representations in different fields in our own society. It makes no sense to me. I remember growing up, um, my secondary school was in Lagos, Nigeria, and I read William Shakespeare alongside Chinua Achebe. 
things fall apart alongside Wale Shoinka. So I read the English literature, but I read African literature too. It's amazing to me that we don't we, we are losing out on that in our in this country. There's so much that we can benefit from, right? Just the way the stories are told, just the way, you know, um, that the, the narratives are written and the way the descriptions explode in your mind because of the way the writer is written and the way you are introduced to different cultures, different thinking. And it doesn't matter what field you're in. I mean, think about it. There's so much in medicine, in technology, in engineering, all of these different fields that come from other societies they're not Britain or the United States of America. Get back to the roots of where it started, right? Who, who, who started using the mathematical sim the symbols? Who said, all of that is very interesting to me. And how did that progress? And I think that all of that feeds into how we treat each other in our society. We do know, particularly in our British society, and you know, I'm very, very vocal about the fact that the United Kingdom is institutionally racist. And that is a systemic thing that permeates through society at a macro level and at a micro level because of the way we perceive certain things. But if we start with education, it means that we start to view each other as equals. We start to view each other as having something to add to the conversation. The way that people of Black, Asian, and ethnic minorities are sometimes viewed as um, you should be grateful that you're part of here or that we open our borders. You know, all that kind of talk, right? All of that kind of thinking and that kind of this narrative, divisive narrative, will be cut short because the next generation is being taught better than our generation. It's being taught better than the previous generation. It, it, it means that you and I, Minush, end up doing the work that our parents did. I mean, think about that. I, imagine the our kids and our kids' kids having to have the same conversation over and over again because people are not progressing and people are not passing on the information that they are learning. And that's because hard conversations around what should be taught in schools is, is being debated and even in the House of Commons, for goodness sake. I don't know how many of you paid attention to what was going on in the House of Commons last week or two weeks ago around this whole critical race theory. There's nothing jack or race theory or theoretical about the lived experiences of black asian and ethnic minority groups in this country it's not a theory it's fact you know and when you <laughs> so you, you've done a great deal in terms of activism and you're known for your for your political activism and trying to shape public opinion but activism has gotten both easier because there's great tools and social media and so on but it's also got much harder because the debate is much more divided. How do you go about trying to cross that divide and be heard among those who may not want to hear some of the things you're saying? And how and what should young people do? And what lessons can they have in terms of how to be heard in, in the current environment? I think, let me put it this way, the first thing I would say about political activism, or just activism in general, because for me, activism is about acting, taking that step, regardless of, in spite of, through your fears, through the bottom, you know, butterflies in your belly, through you go, oh my God, can I, can I do it, can I do it? You keep taking the step, and yes, you do it, because activism is not about feeling confident, it's about being angry enough and passionate enough to just do something about it, irrespective of how you're feeling, right? And what activism has taught me, 
there will always be people on the other side that think absolutely opposite to you. Even when it looks as clear as day, like, come on, there's nothing to... How, how can we be arguing over school, you know, free school meals? How can we be arguing over helping the helpless? You know, things like that. But there will always be somebody with a difference of opinion on the other side. And what I have learned is I can only speak with my voice and I can only defend what I say and what I believe. So I, I have learned never to adopt or say what somebody else is saying. I only say what I believe because that's the only thing I can defend. Um, and I also believe strongly in authenticity. It is your authenticity that stands you in your ground. So it doesn't matter if the rain is falling, if there's a storm, you don't move. If nothing moves you because you're being authentic. You're standing right there in your authenticity. That is absolutely critical, in my opinion, in any form of activism. But paramount above all this, I'm a woman of faith. And who I am today is by the grace of God. So even when I've got cobwebs in my head, I take it to God. If, if understanding who I am in God is what helps to propel me in standing firm in what I need to say. In understanding that, yes, there will be the naysayers, but I am covered. Okay? I am covered. Because when you are fighting the good fight, okay, there will be people, like I say, that think differently from you. There will be people who actually hurl all kinds of abuse at you. And you, if you are authentic and you're standing your own authenticity, there's nothing that they're going to say about you that should start making you doubt who you are. Mm -hmm. Understand that. And so for the youth, this is what I'm going to say. I want you to understand that your voice more than matters. It's, it, 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 let me put it this way. It should be the foundation of how we move forward as a society. You must exercise your voice. It is okay for your voice not to be as loud as the next person. Your voice doesn't need to be loud. Your voice just needs to be you. It needs to represent you. Okay? Sometimes people think the only way I can be an activist is to be like Barack Obama, to be like, uh, I don't know, Nelson Mandela, to be more like this. No, 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 no. The world has already had the Nelson Mandelas. The world has had the Barack Obama, the Oprah Winfrey's, and all these other great names. The world doesn't need another Barack Obama. The world needs you. You are the one the world is waiting for because your voice matters. And this is why I always say to people that there will be some heroes and sheroes out there that are well publicized in the world. But it is those silent sheroes and heroes that we should always give a silent salute to, even publicly salute, because they make a difference. So I want you to know that your voice counts. And I want you to use your voice whichever possible way you can. And that for me means, you know, I use this example of Rosa Parks, right? Mm -hmm. Rosa Parks didn't shout. She didn't point fingers. When she was asked to get up, no. I would have been, I mean, I'd have had my African rapper around my waist, like, okay, come on. You want to get, let's get into it. She just didn't get up. Rosa Parks didn't, all she did was not get up and she started a whole new revolution. So just being you is absolutely critical. The other thing I'll say to the youth is do your homework, educate yourself. Always put, I mean, maybe this is my legal training coming in as well, that always think about what the other side will come up with. So whatever your view or your stance is, always go, now, if I was thinking on the opposite side, what would I say? I mean, I think about how you're going to respond to that. Look, 
at home, if I'm perfectly honest, my husband doesn't agree with 50% of my political views. I haven't divorced him yet. <laughs> but what I find that it's so helpful to have somebody who thinks totally different from me. So when I get on those political debates or whatever debates on TV, I'm like, oh, I've heard that one before. Bring it, bring it. I've got a response for you. It, I, I always say it is, it, is, it is very, very, the best way I can describe it is, I think it, it empowers you to have people think differently from you. Mm-hmm. Friends, loved ones, even foes. I have a conversation with them. The people I debate with, that right after our public debate, we're laughing and we're clapping hands because there's so much more on other things that we agree with than this one thing that we disagree with. The only people I probably don't get on with afterwards is because they represent everything that I thoroughly stand against. I'm like, whoa, come on. <laughs> but I would say to the youth, definitely, your voice matters. You are an activist and you do not need LinkedIn to call you an influencer before you start influencing in your sphere of influence. So let me ask you a little bit, Shola, about this particular moment uh, and why this particular moment might be especially important because of the combination of the pandemic and what it's revealed, Black Lives Matter and the climate emergency. All of those have revealed deep, inequalities and tensions in our society and it feels like we might be on the cusp of of a moment of great social change what do you think about that do you think that is the case and what do you think the barriers are to progressive change and what should be done about them I think we're absolutely Minish I think you're absolutely spot on we are on the cusp of a social change it is a matter of when not if I don't think we are there yet for that change because those who like the status quo as is are fighting hard to keep the status quo as is. That means that it makes our work work twice as hard, if not, you know, thrice as hard, especially because I'm going to have to say, I'm going to say we put people in power that exercise and want to keep the status quo. We have exercised our votes in such a way that the people who ought to be able to drive that political change for social change are the very people who are making us push against the grave. And the way we must address this is to use our votes effectively. We must put people in positions of power that will represent us. And it is not enough. And I'm going to say this again. It's like the general elections here in 2019. I swear to God, when the results came out with the um, Conservative Party having an 80-seat majority, all because of Brexit, I, I, I needed a week or two to just take a step back, not because of the Conservatives, but because of the people that put them in power. I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. You've just had 10 years of Tory austerity. We've just had how many years of a divisive conversation around Brexit? We've had all of these examples, yet because of one subject, you put the very people that you know by their practice have done jack all for you, you put them in power. So I'm like, people, what are you thinking? What exactly am I, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing, right? It, it was like I had a, I, I, needed, I needed to go take a short break, but then I wasn't allowed to take a short break because then I went on an interview and I said, oh, and then I just let rip. Like, what the heck are people thinking? I can't explain it, right? And then with this whole year, 
with the government's response on COVID, with the government's lack of response on basic necessities. I'm saying to people, I'm saying, oh, were you expecting something different? Because I'm not surprised. I am not surprised. That's why I said, when we use our votes, this is what we need to, you said this social change that is being motivated by COVID, the inequalities, structural inequalities that uh, COVID basically showed a huge magnified, right? That's what COVID did. The, um, the racial inequality and racial injustice of the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement also magnified. And all of these other series of issues, including the climate change emergency, all of these things can only happen if we exercise our rights sensibly. And I don't just mean at the top of power. I'm talking about your MP, your local councillor, whoever it is that is in a position of power. And that includes your schools. That includes LSE. I'm sorry. I, I, I see. I, I'm going to say I, that includes whatever institution you're in because there is nothing wrong in in debating in order to have a, um, a collaborative solution to, to, you know, to come out at the end. That's what we should drive, but we should not be afraid to challenge the status quo. To say to LSE, as an example, you can do better, and you can do better because of ABC. And sometimes I think people think, well, we're just waiting for our leaders to tell us what to do, or I'm just waiting for the head of LSE or the head of this department. No, 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 you've got it all wrong. When people are appointed into a position of power, they do not, or influence, they do not have all the answers, and I don't expect them to. Mm. What I expect us to do is, once we've identified a problem, go give them the answer. In fact, do better than that. Give, work out what the issue is, work out what the solution is, and say to them, this is what you need to do. And then you call them to account if they've not done it or even done better, because you've given them the solution. So what the heck is the problem? But you sit down waiting for your head of department or the prime minister or anybody else because they're in a position of influence to all of a sudden magically have an answer that you already have, then you're part of the, you know, you're part of the problem or the solution. And is that what made you write your book? You've just, you're, you've got a book coming out, which is called, This Is Why I Resist. Tell us a little bit about the, the, the motive for that book and the message of that book. Can I be perfectly honest and say that um, I was I was royally pissed off. That is what started <laughs> because there's, the so book. Many, there's so there's so many hard conversations being had, hard conversations that I I almost felt like we are repeating ourselves over and over again, and um and the 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 answers or the the debates is being had in very toxic environments where some people withdraw themselves from having the conversation. So I'm like, okay, look, this is why I resist is basically say, look, it is time to change the narrative around the dehumanization of the black identity, right? So from addressing every form of racial inequality and injustice to every racial negative stereotype out there from our hair, the color of our skin, the colorism issue, to the um, you know discriminatory impact in education at the workplace, to even saying our names. Come on now, say my name. But ooh, that's a bit difficult. My name isn't difficult. If you can't say my name, if you cannot read my name, as far as I'm concerned, you are an illiterate. You can't read. Those letters are there. Just pronounce them. And if you if you 
don't want to pronounce my name because you think it's difficult. You're just being downright lazy because you have no problem saying Swarovski or Schwarzenegger. You, you, you're perfectly happy to say all those names, but all of a sudden, when it comes to saying must, you're tripping over. What are you tripping over your tongue for? Say it slowly, let it roll off your tongue. You said my name beautifully, Manish. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's things like that that motivated me to talk about mm-hmm. identity politics in the book, to talk about um, the, the, the whole issue around how we see ourselves in a society. And I focus primarily on the United States and the United Kingdom. It is a book about the hard conversations in which I am responding to the hard conversations, primarily those that you see on social media. And those you see, and the way that people of influence, again, we are all people of influence. People put out thoughts and narratives. um, And on social media, you find a few people go, oh, and everybody goes, oh, and everyone's shouting about it. How dare you say that? How dare you not say that? But the reality is that person is reflecting what a big portion of society is thinking. Mm. So what we need to do is respond to that, not be afraid to have those hard conversations. Sometimes you need to get into the boxing ring. And I'm not afraid to get into the boxing ring. And that is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I, I want us to be, to be able to challenge ourselves as a, as a society in doing better. I want us to get to a point where we are celebrating the excellence of the black identity, not this black contrived black identity that is rooted in slavery in colonialism in all kinds of things that we that have jack all to do with us so as a as a black woman of uh, i'm british and i'm nigerian i'm african from the roots of my head to the soles of my feet my sister i am proud of that and i'm also proud to be british there are people who say to me well you can't be both you have to be one of the nonsense i can't be both and i am both but there are people who can't understand that, who don't want to accept it. And what we have to understand is a lot of the next generation and a lot of my generation are dealing with what previous generations have had to deal with. And people go, well, we are not as racist as we used to be. You're still racist. That's the problem. (laughs) So I also talk about solutions in the book. I talk about how to address racial microaggressions. I'm giving real examples. So this is not, this is no theoretical book, right? And I say to people, if you're looking for somebody to hold you by the hand and give you sugar-coated words to make you feel comfortable, this book is not for you. <laughs> Maybe you need to go somewhere else. But if you're ready to be challenged and get on board for a revolution, please get into the book. Fantastic. So we've got lots of questions coming in and let me start with some of them. Uh, I've got a couple of questions from Marianne Moniki and Isla uh, who who ask questions about basically history and education. So why do you think black history is not part of the UK national curriculum and how can we change that? And Isla adds, we also need to know and embrace our own history, ancestry and roots so we know our own identity. Do you think do you think this education is needed to support us in the struggle for equality? So sort of two questions around the theme of history, education, and equality. Listen, first of all, black history is British history. But we know that for the longest time, British history has told the, their history from one perspective. And that perspective is rooted in white supremacy. Period. They don't talk about contributions from Asia, contributions from Africa in winning the world war. It's all 
white British. That's not true. You couldn't have done it without um, whether the colonies. Um, they don't talk about the contribution from the Windrush generation in rebuilding this society after the devastation of the Second World War. You could not have rebuilt this country without the Windrush generation, without the generations that came from different colonies, including when the colonies became independent. It could not have been possible. I think it's deliberate. It is absolutely deliberate to make it all about white supremacy. And people sometimes think that white supremacy looks like burning curses and using the N-word. No, it's far more sophisticated than that, my dear. No, no, no. It's you growing up and knowing jack all about your roots. It is you being told that in very subtle terms, or even just by the absence of it, that you are inferior. It is, it is when my, my eight-year-old now, she was about four or five, was watching, she called me in and said, mommy, isn't this advert for this toy? Isn't this toy for me too? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's for all of me. She said, no, no, but I don't see anybody that looks like me in this advert because there were just white kids in the advert. Mm -hmm. I was gobsmacked, not realizing at the age of four or five that my daughter at the back of my head would be able to process this. That's white supremacy. Even the products that I sold to us, in the way that whiteness is centered in our society, that is white supremacy. But black history is British history. And it is absolutely pivotal for that to be part of the general curriculum from January to December. Look, I, I'm very fond of saying that. Look, when it comes to Black Lives Matter, and again, I'm talking about the movement, I'm not talking about the organization, I'm talking about the ethos of Black Lives Matter, which is to eradicate racial inequality and racial injustice. We Black people are in it 365 days a year, 24-7. We don't, it's not a hotel that you check in and check out of, which is why Black history and all of the contributions and all of the beauty and excellence that is um, black art, black culture, black music, everything that, that, that makes it also contributes to the brilliance of British, you know, what is British should be part of our education. Absolutely. Look, I am not, I, I, let me put it this way. I've only, only over the years come to understand slowly but surely about grime music, you know. It took me a while to get into rap music, but rap music is from my time. If you listen to some grime or rap music, right, and I'm not talking about the ones with all the swear words that, Lord in heaven, you need a dictionary for. I'm not talking about that. But some of them are poetry emotion. If you listen to the way the words are, are put together and the way they rhyme and the way and with the beat, that for me is literature. That is something, it doesn't have to look a certain way. Or it's like us. I mean, for many of you students, when you, if you've not started working yet or when you get into the workplace and you are being subtly told and also being clearly told that looking professional is a certain way. Heck no, that's not true. And yet, a black woman shouldn't have to straighten her hair to be able to get a you know, position or to look professional. No, no, no. You, you see me with my carry shells and my African twist. This is professional. But because whiteness is centered into everything, even the way we look is treated as less than. That is because from a young age, our education, and not just in schools, I'm saying outside schools as well, has not prepared generations to appreciate the diversity of our brilliance.
Okay, so the next question comes from Olivia. What are your views on how cultural institutions such as the British Museum should or could respond to Black Lives Matter? Well, first, can you please return everything you stole? Okay, so all the Nigerian artifacts, send them back to Benin cities there, Benin Kingdom, send them back. I think one of the things that institutions can do, like the British Museum, is to do more about highlighting the truth of the history. Don't tell the history from one side of the of, of the story, which is, oh, you know, white British came and conquered. No, that's not what happened. Don't act like Africans did not resist because we did. And if you're going to showcase our artifacts, tell the real story on who built it, the, the history behind it, not your adulterated version that makes it look less barbaric to you because it's not barbaric to us, right? Tell the truth about where it has come from, the circumstances in which you had, and please, can we start talking about when you will return them? Okay. And now a question from Yvonne. What are your thoughts on critical race theory, which seems to have entered the UK conversation regarding black people and the strive for equality? Okay. Um, I said earlier that, as far as I'm concerned, the lived experiences of black people, of Asians and ethnic minorities is not a theory, Okay. It's a fact. And we are not a monolith. So I know some of us also probably have an issue with the BAME word because, you know, it's like they've lumped us all together. But we're not a mon you know, single monolith of thought. We all have different experiences with inequality and injustice, and there are different nuances within it. I would say this. I consider it, I absolutely consider that not teaching about white privilege, white supremacy in schools, not teaching about racial inequality and injustice and how to address this in order to avoid repeating history. I think all of that is, it is a symptom of our systemic racism. It is systemic racism on steroids. For you to say you don't want to educate students or, or, or children on real experiences and having to empower them to be able to recognize it and also empower them to be able to think differently from our generation so that they don't make the same mistakes we have. For me, that's problematic. If we don't have a problem teaching children sex education from year five, don't have a problem teaching children you know, religious studies, we don't have a problem teaching children about same-sex families, about LGBTQI, all of these things which once upon a time we all know were very controversial mm -hmm. to teach about. Why would you make it controversial to teach about race equality, race, you know, racial justice? And the reason why they don't want to teach that is to continue to perpetuate this white supremacy. That is mm -hmm. it. And, and what they don't realize is all they're doing is um, teaching white kids to be like the white supremacists and teaching black kids and brown kids who know better from their own understand people have lived experiences outside the workplace and outside schools so what you end up teaching children will conflict with what they're experiencing outside school the reason why we teach and have the hard conversations in schools is so that children are empowered to to do things differently i don't know any black child that will go to school and has not been prepared by their parents that look, if you hear a word like this or they come home and say, mommy, somebody called me the N word. 
and the first time they've ever heard that word is in school. Should the school not be part, should, should the school not take responsibility for ensuring that all students, all students, it's not enough to just say to students, don't do this, it's bad. Don't do that. No, no, you have to teach them why. You, you have to make them understand how it hurts and why it hurts and the history behind it. And then you have to show them the way because the way means that when they grow older, they will not be having this conversation that we're having. So what it does is it perpetuates the, the whole white supremacy thing and it, it perpetuates the perception of black people as inferior. When this thinking, not just thinking, when, when people are, are calling it a thinking, they're calling it a theory, racism is not a theory. White privilege is not a theory. It's not a thinking that you should debate. Racism is not up for debate. It exists. There's no denying that if Minush and I walked into a store this very minute, right? Nobody in that store knows us, okay? It's not written on our foreheads how much we earn. It is not written on our foreheads who we are. The only difference, they will see two women walk in, but only one of us is likely to be followed more than the other. Why? And because Minush is much more on the lighter side than I am, right? <laughs> It doesn't mean that, yeah, it doesn't mean that you're benefiting from white privilege or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. Because even amongst ethnic minorities, there's issue of colorism, okay? It is because of the way we are perceived in our society. Children need to be taught so that they can prepare better. They, they need to have, I don't know, scenario playing so that they go, oh, it's not fair if my friend is treated that way. I would love students to um, when they get to secondary school, even university, to be able to speak out for their, for their fellow colleague and go, no, 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 you can't do that on my watch. That's wrong. Whether that colleague is black, brown, whether that colleague is LGBTQI, whoever they, they, they are, they have a better understanding of different inequalities mm -hmm. because we teach them young what is wrong, what is right, why it's wrong, why it's right, and what they can do to be part of the solution. So yeah, I don't I don't support the the equalities minister. Hmm? Can be bad enough. Can you imagine an equalities minister coming out with that nonsense? I'm like, what a disgrace! How can you be an equalities minister if you come out and say white privilege should not be taught in schools? Of course, people qualified with well, it shouldn't be taught on contested. What utter nonsense! It exists. So what was it? Sorry, can we? around you you alluded to the fact that we've we've made progress in other areas of equality and i've certainly seen that in organizations that i've worked in somehow it's been e i don't want to say easy easy but it's been easier to make progress on gender equality on lgbtq rights but race is i in many places the most difficult why do you think that is so I agree that there has been progress on gender, progress on LGBTQI, but the truth mm -hmm. is we are not where we ought to be. No, no, definitely, gender. definitely. But somehow the... We live in an era where yeah. when, um, blatant inequality... What I'll say is this, what we, what, we, what we have right now is we live in an era where we are more empowered to speak out against gender inequality and LGBTQI inequality and racial inequality. But what I find with um, inequalities to do with race, particularly as a black person, 
is that because systemic racism permeates our society, it almost, the, uh, one of the ways I describe racism is racism was created by white nations to benefit white people to, at the detriment of black people, okay? That's, that's how I define racism. And so it, it doesn't matter what class you are in in society, people have benefited from this systemic racism. This, and, and the white privilege that is a product of the systemic racism, that is why it is so much more difficult to deal with. Because there, there is an invincible reach. I don't know how many of you um, recall the issue of uh, the, the incident of Amy Cooper in New York, months, just months after Judge Floyd. I use that often as an example of everyday racism that people don't immediately acknowledge. But it took an incident like that for people to go, whoa, I didn't even realize that that happened. For a woman to go, come help me, come help me, this African, and really using the choice words, knowing it will trigger something. That is what we deal with here. That is what we deal with in terms of the workplace, it would deal with in terms of schools, it would deal with in terms of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And because that systemic racism permeates through our society, it is much, much harder. There are people whose way of life is predicated on denying black people an equal value of life and liberty. Mm -hmm. That's not conspiracy theory. That's fact. Simply look at the stats. Look at how many black people get in, in schools. How many black people get this, this certain outcomes? I don't do equal opportunities anymore, Minush. I, I, when people go, oh, we've got equal opportunities. Like, I don't need your equal opportunities. I need equal outcomes. If the outcome does not equal the opportunity, then you're giving us jack all. Because even in the equal opportunities, you're centering whiteness. You're going, well, we can only have social number of black people, social number of ethnic minorities, social number of LGBTQI, so we can look like we're progressive. Okay, let me switch. I'm going to switch topics because we have a question from Adiola saying, what message or advice would you give to the young, gifted and black Nigerians who are protesting police brutality and the special anti-robbery squad in Nigeria? I'm incredibly proud of the youths out on the street um, saying enough is enough. Um, and, and what I've always said is people don't understand that police brutality in Nigeria has... <laughs> It has predated SARS, i.e. that police squad. Um, it, has, it, it has existed, I think, as far as, as far as we can trace back, even before Nigeria got its independence. So just think about it. For at least 60 years, you have had people that abused the authority, the police authority, to terrorize, torture Nigerians. Uh, and I think part of this reason is because those in power actually benefit from it. This would not be happening if people in power are not protecting those who commit these atrocities. This would not be happening if when certain police officers do this, if they were prosecuted, you would have better police behavior. So when, you, when we have um, President Buhari about two weeks ago come out with a speech saying, we're going to disband SARS and then we're going to deploy the police officers to other units, I'm like, are you out of your mind insane? That's, that is not a solution. This is not going to be the first time that SARS or a unit like SARS will be disbanded. You can't then take the same police officers and go put them in. The mentality of police brutality is what needs to be squashed. And what we then saw three weeks later, because bear in mind that the, um, 
The SARS and SARS protests has, has been going on for at least three weeks before the massacre that happened in Lekki. Now, if we were dealing with a responsible government, would you not think that they would, within a week, have been able to read the room and give the protesters substantive measures that would appease them, immediate sweet justice, immediate sweet changes? They didn't do that. They allowed it to escalate, thinking, oh, we will manage it. And what did they do? They shot light bullets into Nigerians. I, as far as I'm concerned, the blame rests with the government, with the government, and it's almost like they're taking a leap out of Donald Trump's book, wanting to blame the protesters as well. So what I would say to the protesters is, it is so important to stand your ground, to lay out the changes that you want. Do not give up on what you want, because what you see in Minish, let me tell you what you're seeing in Nigeria right now. People are protesting, not because they don't have something better to do with their time. Nigerians are hard workers, right? And the theme always is don't mess with Nigerians. The reason why they're on the streets in the midst of a pandemic and they're shouting is because their lives literally, it, it literally depends on the change. It literally depends on ending this police brutality. It literally depends on having better governance in Nigeria. So I say to the youth, stand your ground. Let them know who they are talking to. Let them know that this protest, this time, we are not going to accept whatever it is that they are throwing at us in order to silence us. Because we know this is not the first time that protests in Nigeria are silenced or attempted to be silenced by shooting. It's just that in 2020, whoo, there's a microscope, a magnifying glass that has, I don't know, amplified everything in a way that hasn't happened before. So now the world is shouting, Buhari, what the heck are you doing? You Lagos State Governor, what the heck are you doing? And people say, the time for change is now. The police is there to serve and protect. If you can't serve and protect, get the heck out of our way and give us new police. We educate them. Sorry, Minush, I'm sorry. I don't not at all, not at all. So now let's move to this theme about how to get change and how to get progress. I've got two questions on that theme. One from Philippe who asks, how can we force multinationals to become a force for good in our society in advancing good governance and human rights? And then one from Cecilia who asks around the weaponization of language by government and how can we get the government ministers to be unafraid to giving facts and admitting when they've made mistakes? So, okay. How do we get them to be forces for good? I love both questions. So the first with multinationals, um, what you find particularly, I, let, let me take this back like um, to the Me Too movement, right? So from 2016, 2017, when the whole global amplifying noise of women standing and saying enough is enough, what you found is that it changed the perspective of multinationals. Because they knew that the, their bottom line, which is money, was literally on the line. So they had to change their behavior. They had to change their corporate social responsibility policies. They had to be seen, to be perceived, to be part of the solution, not the problem. I say when we keep calling out multinationals, when we keep, I, I know some people will call it cancel culture. and It's not about cancel culture to me. I think it's about saying that as a civilian, I've got the power, I've got spending power, I've got vocal power, and I'm going to use it. So whatever products or services you're selling me, if you don't represent me, I will not buy it from you. I will not engage in your services. I will not do that. In fact, I will use my influence in my schools, in my workplace, with my family, to bring to light what you're doing wrong, and until you change 
Jack all is going to change for you. Multinationals are taking more notice in a way that they never could, they never did before, because before they could easily sweep things on the carpet. Particularly during the Black Lives Matter movement this year, what you found was a lot of multinationals, whether it was the um, national football, the NFA in the U.S., right, who used to shut down protesters who wanted to, you know, bend the knee and go, you can't do that, that's not patriotic. What did they do this year? All of a sudden, the black squares are out. All of a sudden, yes, we stand by you. We said, why was that? Because they read the room and they knew it would affect their bottom line. Everything we've been saying this year, whether it's about Black Lives Matter, climate change, women's rights movement, is what has been said years ago. It has been said consistently for years, but there's a, I, I don't know what 2020 has done to make it so much more powerful. And of course, with the impact of COVID, where people now understand that, you know, something's got to change. Multinationals have had to take that change. Now, when it comes to governments, to the, to, to the person who has a question about how do we engage government officials to, um, to tell the truth? Don't vote liars into power. <laughs> it's, it's not difficult. I mean, how you would put someone like Boris Johnson into power when the truth, if it slapped him in the face, he wouldn't even be able to recognize it, it's beyond me. And what we have seen consistently and constantly is if you have somebody at the head who does not, who, who does not hold to being accountable, who finds it easy to lie, that anybody that is beneath them in terms like his cabinet, they will follow suit. And when we don't hold our government to account, they don't take us seriously. So the way we must have government officials, I don't want you to feel that, oh, you know, that there's, that there's no, um, you know, there's no solution. Of course there's a solution, right? Hopefully there'll be another general election soon, if not in another four or so years, and we would vote better and differently. But in the meantime, what we must do is to continually call them out. What you must do is to write to your MPs, your senators, your people in, in, in government, you know, officials, and say what you need to say. You, if you need to go and be in the same space they're in. So imagine if you heard Boris Johnson or if you're American, if you have a senator that's coming to speak at the town hall that you're going to be at, don't be afraid to get up, ask a question that literally calls them out. That's what you should do. And if you're waiting for somebody else to do it, like the journalist or CNN or Fox News, it's not going to happen. And even if they did it, you might not even know about it. It is your responsibility to ensure that you put yourself in a position where you can also do something. And it does not have to involve shouting. It involves, it could involve writing a letter, it could involve a tweet, it could involve a post on social media, it could involve writing a letter to the editor of a newspaper. It could, again, imagine if somebody was going to come and speak at LSE, who you felt does not represent what LSE stands for because of ABC. You know what you have to do, you know what time it is, right? You speak up and you, you go to your director of LSE and those in, with influence and you explain very clearly, articulately, eloquently why this person does not A, B, C, D and what you feel about it. That's what you must do. Use your voice. Okay, perfect. I'm going to, I think that we only have time for one more question. No, I was having so much fun. <laughs> uh, and it's from Olivia. Dr. Shola, what goals do you have for yourself over the next five years? Oh my God. Um, oh, well, okay. C can I be honest? I, I would say to be the others, I hate talking about myself. I find it so boring. But um, let me put it this way. My prayer to God 
is to be an answer to prayers, a solution to problems, and to, to be a key to unlocking potential. That is my prayer. I want to leave the world better than I found it. So I pray for the rest of my life that that is what I am. Okay, I think that's a very uh, good point to end and, a, and, a, and an inspirational message to, uh, to everyone in the audience. Uh, Shola, thank you so much. Thank you so much for helping us to celebrate Black History Month. Thank you for returning to the LSE, your alma mater. Uh, and thank you very much for generating a, a great discussion and a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, really, really honored. We must do this again, even better in person, where I can see all of you. That'll be so much fun, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you all to everyone in the audience for joining us virtually. I hope you enjoyed the event, and please do join us for future LSE public events. Thank Bye. you. Thank you, Manish. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>